0: ryan pack
1: and i'm nicole barlow
0: and this is soundtrack your life where we talk to a guest about a soundtrack that they feel connected to today we have jen howell from the every rom-com podcast welcome jen
2: Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be on your show today.
0: Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast?
2: Yeah. So, Every Rom-Com is a Podcast I started about 2 years ago, and kind of my motivation for starting it was I was listening to a lot of my husband's film podcasts when we go on a road trip. And like all the time it seemed like there was a panel of like three guys or four guys, or sometimes three guys and one girl. And um a lot, and they were always talking about, you know, movies Well, not always, I don't want to say always, but often the movies they talked about were either just your standard, you know, Oscar bait, or they were like kind of more genres that are identified with men, right? You rarely heard people talking about romantic comedies. You rarely heard people talking about what we always call, you know, chick flicks or even like period pieces, right? And I felt that that was really sad. And like a lot of times when they even did talk about women's genres, there were things being left out of the conversation or they were being kind of, you know underestimated, I felt. So that was kind of my motivation for starting the podcast. Like, I like all kinds of movies, like horror is my actually my other favorite genre, but I felt romantic comedies were being kind of underrepresented, at least in the sort of film geek space, right? There's a lot of rom-com podcasts that are more like conversational and kind of fun, and that is great too. We try to have some of that on our show as well, but I really kind of wanted every rom-com to be like, the Film Geeks Romantic Comedy Podcast. So yeah, that's kind of how I've approached it. I started with a few friends who were big like film fans or people who had also sort of studied film like I had. And then I've expanded it to having like guests on some are other podcasters, we've had authors, and just just people with different perspectives are coming on to the show. And I try to have mostly women, but I do also have some man- male guests as well. Like especially sometimes there's Romantic comedies where a male opinion is actually more valuable like we've covered some like gay male rom-coms like dashing in december Which is like a one of the first kind of hallmark style Rom-coms with a gay couple in it. So yeah, we try to do a kind of diverse range of movies as well like we do kind of standard rom-coms But then we also do things that are kind of like adjacent to the genre like we were talking before the show We did a show on twister, right? We did a show on true romance Um, We did a show on Wet Hot American Summer because a lot of these movies you don't really think of as romantic comedies. They nevertheless have these really strong rom-com elements in them. So I just love talking about film. I've really enjoyed learning as much as I have about movies doing the show. Uh, We're doing a musicals series right now. And like I had never even watched an Astaire Rogers movies before like doing this podcast. And I learned so much through the research process. And I love just sharing that with people and sharing kind of the film journey I'm going on to. So, yeah,
1: what a cool mission. I love that. I love that you are taking something that traditionally gets like tossed aside as being lightweight, which we do like for stuff like that's, you know, crafted like for a female audience. I feel like, you know, there's a very dismissive kind of like film bro approach to a lot of that stuff. Oh, yeah. Nora Ephraim's genius. Yeah. Like, there's so much genius in, in romantic comedies. And I think it's a lot broader than people want to believe, too. So.
2: Yeah, and it's funny. Like Some of the movies that are even, like, I would have considered more lightweight, you can still really have an interesting cultural conversation around them. Like, we did an episode on She's the Man, and we ended up just kind of exploring, like, how gender roles had kind of shifted you know, from when I grew up in the 70s to when people were growing up in the 90s and like how they had in some ways become more extremely polarized, like over those years when that's not exactly what you might've expected to happen, right? With our culture trying to move forward. So you get into interesting kind of conversations about how these romantic comedies reflect our cultural values. And we like to bring kind of a feminist perspective to it as well. And just we do have people with like differing opinions, too, that sometimes one of us will hate a movie, Mm -hmm. think it's terrible and should be trashed, and the other person will see some value in it. So, yeah, we like to have those discussions.
1: That rules. I love that it's both um, intelligent and a little bit spicy. (laughs) (laughs) This feels like a really good segue into asking you uh, why
2: you chose
1: Flashdance for us today. Yeah,
2: so the funny thing is Flashdance for me is more, much more resonant, resonant as a soundtrack than it is as a movie, okay? And mm-hmm. you're a soundtrack podcast. And I have admired you know, your podcast and listening to it. And so I wanted to come on and I thought, what is a soundtrack they haven't covered yet, but it's just like very meaningful to me. And it was Flashdance. I was probably seven years old or six years old when I first heard it, okay? I grew up in, I was born in 77. Um, Flashdance came out when I was six. And then I was on this like van trip to Florida with my family. Like and I'm talking my grandparents, my uncles, my aunts, my mom, my, my baby brother. We're all on this van together. We're listening to everybody's music and like you know how sometimes those early memories you'll have of music really stick with you? Absolutely. Yeah. Like I remember a lot of music from that trip. We were listening to like The Police, Walking on the Moon. We listened to like Paul Simon, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. But then my uncle gave me his Flashdance uh tape and his Walkman to borrow. And I put that on and I became obsessed, like obsessed with that soundtrack. Like for that whole road trip, I just kept playing it on repeat over and over. And like, this is the way you interacted with music in the eighties, right? With tapes, you didn't like pick and choose. You didn't skip ahead. You just listened to the whole thing. And then you turned it over and you listened to the other side. Maybe sometimes you'd fast forward, but it was a pain, right? So you just listened. And so whether I liked the song or not, they kind of all just became kind of part of me and i listened to it so much and loved it so much my uncle who was like 16 at the time he just said you take it you take the tape and i still have that tape like i <laughs> to prepare for this episode i was listening to the same tape i had when i was 6 years old like it's survived storage facilities and international moves the whole the whole deal so Wow, that's so cool. It's it's
1: always like a rad uncle. You know, I feel like um, most of your like education in like the 80s and 90s, your music education came from like a rad uncle or cousin or somebody that like, you know, could pass the knowledge to you and then that shit gets really deeply imprinted in your brain cuz as you said there are no skips there are no options it's just what you have for the duration of your like 12 hour drive with your
2: parents yeah 100% and that same uncle is the uncle who gave me my first like other tape which was it had madonna's like a virgin on one side and it had cindy lopper she's so unusual on the other side and that is like yes. the other like big tape i had and like the other thing about flashdance in that whole era is like, I feel like it's an important soundtrack in so many ways because it was at the birth of the music video era. And in a lot of ways it spurred on the music video era and the connection between movies and music videos. So I think it's just a really resonant soundtrack in terms of what it brought to the culture. And and a lot of my stories, I'll have some more stories about this. I don't know, I don't think I wanna tell them all up top, but I have more stories about this. Flashdance was really part of like, um, the, like the way I formed my sexuality and my attitudes about women and relationships. At the time. And some of that came from the soundtrack too. And it really is like, I feel like there's a through line with that and things like Madonna and other cultural figures that women were being inspired by in the 1980s in ways you might not expect. Like on the surface, Flash Dance seems kind of maybe exploitative or objectifying, but like I think it's more complicated than that, honestly.
1: Yeah. And you know, and you had said that there's something about this movie that's probably more important as a pop cultural artifact. When it comes to its soundtrack and maybe less so as a movie, uh, I think everybody knows the iconic moment with Jennifer Beals and the kind of like, you know, dance scene with the shower and the water. And I feel like that's been replicated so many times everywhere across mediums from like Family Guy to... Like, it's sort of a trope yeah. now. It's probably to the point where there are generations of people that don't
2: <laughs> even know where that's from. Yeah, like, one of the Deadpool 2 posters had that, and, like, Kelly from The Office did it in Cafe Disco, right. so. <laughs> right, yes, the Cafe Disco moment, that's such a good example. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, and I feel like even the big climax of the movie where she is dancing for um, her audition for, that like, like, Dancing Conservatory, like, I even feel like Like, I think I I saw that maybe in film school or somewhere where, like, I saw just that performance without seeing the rest Mm -hmm. of the movie. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's iconic, too, like, with the breakdancing and just, like, how hard they go with that dance sequence at the end.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The dance sequences do go really hard, like, unnecessarily so, (laughs) almost right it's kind of like footloose to me where it's the same like cut away from kevin bacon to kevin bacon's like stunt double that's doing all this really like fantastic and almost like not realistic dancing like really physical dancing
2: yeah i mean and flash dance is the one that started that i mean that's yeah. like precedes footloose precedes dirty dancing precedes so much of our right. 80s dance music and then our 90s dance music culture and 2000s dance dance movie culture like yeah the dance movie was almost born again like in 1983 i feel like
1: that's a great point like even if it's not a perfect film I feel like it there was a, a cascade effect right where like a lot of other films were born out of the popularity of flashdance
2: yeah yeah no and I and I lived through it I don't I'm probably older than you guys I think like that's my guess barely because
1: I was born in December of 80s so like I have a recollection of all flash right dance. All right Gen X like, it's it's in my consciousness, right? Like, it's there somewhere stuck in the back of my brain. I also have an older sister. And when I say older sister, she's 12 years my okay, senior. Okay, yeah. She's the one that had, like, a Purple Rain poster on her wall. And she's the one that was, like, making me craft mac and cheese and, like, sitting me in front of MTV. So I had, like, a lot of tender introductions to stuff that I probably didn't have any business watching. But that was – That's like the latchkey kid. That was
2: an 80s childhood. And actually, in some ways, I'm kind of grateful for that kind of childhood. Like, I don't know. Like, we've talked a few times on my podcast about how kids these days, like, it seems like they have all their kids programming and it's separate from the adults programming. But you don't get that experience of talking to an older generation about something you're seeing and kind of learning about adult culture. But sorry, that's like a totally different separate point.
1: No, absolutely, though. I just had a conversation last night, actually, with somebody else where I was. This is kind of a tangent, but kind of related to Flashdance, where like, if you're like a little kid, you're like a tiny kid, <laughs> you should know that flash dance is a thing. It's not like intended for you. But I remember like listening to like Celine Dion in elementary school and just feeling like I was some kind of divorcee at like 11 years old, which is a really odd because it's what you had. Like there was a choices you just kind of had the things that were um, popular and that were huge that the sort of you know streaming era changes the calculus of that
2: but it's funny you say you have no business watching this when you're a kid because a lot of my stories about flash dance i don't know they might to some people they might serve as a cautionary tale about exposing children to this movie because like is it okay to talk about this by the way i don't, I don't want to cut off you guys if you're no elaborate i actually want to okay. know <laughs> So yeah, for me, Flashdance, like, I was one of those kids, and they, kids like this exist, I was one of those kids who was very interested in sexuality kind of early, and I had, like, crushes very early, and I had just, like, an awareness of sexuality quite early in my life. I mean, it's kind of a chicken or egg situation. Was it flash dance and Madonna that did it, or was I drawn to those things because of flash dance and Madonna? You'd, or, or, yeah. or, beca- or was I drawn to flash dance and Madonna because of that? I don't know which it was. But... Flashdance is like this deeply sexual album in a lot of ways. It has a lot of hints about sexuality within the lyrics. And then I did watch the movie, you know, after I'd listened to the soundtrack so many times. I probably saw it several times one way or the other on cable or something. And I was just like fascinated by several aspects of it. And I was fascinated by the sexual assertiveness and independence of Alex, the character Alex in the movie. But then the, the dancing the exhibitionism of the dancing was really like intriguing to me. And I spent many like hours dancing to this album, like in my childhood bedroom, trying to kind of look sexy. I probably had the blinds up at times too, like not on purpose, but like, I was just foolish and wasn't like thinking about it really. And it's funny because when you're like 10 or, or 11, like you can. Envision yourself as a woman, even though you're not sometimes like I don't know if you had that experience But I remember being 10 or 11 and just like seeing myself in this totally different light dancing to this music Imagining that I was like those women in the movie and like It really was like an introduction to like being in my body and expressing myself through dance and expressing myself sexually before like I was ready to move on to like some kind of interpersonal interaction with someone else and I don't know. It's, it's funny. People might think that that's weird or like, like kids aren't sexual, but some kids start to have those feelings early. Right. And I was one of them. And so this tape was like really part of that exploration for me. Like, so you take even the song like seduce me tonight, which is in that strip club scene, which like is the the Mm -hmm. dirty, terrible part of the movie. Right. Like you're like, no, you're not supposed to be. That was kind of intriguing to me too. There's a line in that song that was like, show me all the secrets hidden in your thighs, in your thighs. And when I was a kid, I was just like, I thought that was so intriguing and erotic. And like, I was drawn to like finding out what that meant. I was the kid who was reading classic literature, like Madame Bovary, trying to find out about sex, right? Because like, we didn't have, you know, internet porn back then. And I'm glad we didn't have internet porn. You just had to find secrets here and there in your music or in your literature. So that's, that's another part of why flash dance has stuck with me is that like, early like being drawn to that exhibitionism, being drawn to that like female sexuality and trying to explore it and try it on.
1: I think this is an important point, right? I feel like there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like historical look backs at the 80s where, you know, people tend to see the 80s as being very uptight and repressed. But I don't know that that's entirely true. I think that's kind of an oversimplification of a lot of the things that were happening in media in particular that were really at odds with that. And like you said, I think, you know, the influence of somebody like Giorgio Moroder, for example, like on the soundtrack of this movie brings this like kind of crazy, like 70s exhibitionism, slinkiness, like to the music and to like what it's bringing that, you know, is very like not, Reagan era the time, right? Like it's something very different and much freer and much looser. I can understand how you would watch something like that and be like oh this holds many mysteries well
2: the other thing is like i actually don't think of the 80s as being too sexually repressed because this is like also the decade of madonna right like this is madonna and janet jackson also like these very powerful women like sexually assertive independent women like that were and they were also playing with gender a lot they were playing they would wear like men's suits in some videos and things like that they would play roles and go back and forth and they were not they were more subject, they were more sexual subjects than they were objects. Like you go like into the late nineties, you start to get stuff like Britney Spears where she's almost more like acting like a baby a little bit or like talking about how she's a virgin, right? Like it was such a big deal. She was supposedly a virgin. Madonna is instead, quote air quotes, like a virgin, right? She's not a virgin. It's, um, It's a woman being unashamed to be sexual. And like, I grew up with that. And I'm so glad honestly, that I grew up with like these kind of powerful women. Like women were still being objectified, but like they were kind of taking more control of that. I feel like in the eighties, then maybe they even did in the late nineties. Sadly, I don't know. That's my
1: perspective, anyway. No, I think it's a good perspective. I think it's one that doesn't get talked about maybe often enough as we think back on on the eighties. I think this is a really this is a good way to pivot also to maybe the two biggest hits off of this Mm. soundtrack. um, You know, Maniac and and What a Feeling, which were. Enormous, enormous pop hits. I, I think that they were so ubiquitous, you, you probably couldn't avoid them um, at a certain point in 1983.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the soundtrack sold six million copies. And I think what, what a feeling did get to number one on the Billboard charts as well.
2: Yeah, definitely. Like, um, I, I feel like I, I looked up the, how long it was on the Billboard charts, but I don't remember now. But it was, yeah, it was a huge song. And Irene Kara's Cara, Irene work on that, like, was so important. Like, did you guys hear that she sued apparently because she wasn't getting enough royalties for that, though? No, that was sad to hear.
1: Oh, wow. So she made, like, a bad deal and didn't get what she should have been getting from and it? I
2: guess she did eventually win, but then they claimed bankruptcy, so she never got really much money. She got a bigger share of the royalties eventually. Yeah. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah.
0: It was number one for six weeks, and it was on the charts for 25.
2: Nice.
1: <laughs> that is such a long time. I mean, that's really dominant. It also, uh, Flashdown's Want a Feeling uh, was Best Original Song that year at the Academy Awards. Is that, am I getting that right? And then I think Maniac was also nominated. So you had two in the same category from one movie, which is really unusual. And I think really proves how big a deal this was in its moment.
2: Yeah, yeah, I didn't really like that wasn't my favorite song from the soundtrack. But that is like you said, Ryan, that scene that that scene that it played during the audition scene was such an important scene and so iconic and like, I mean, who doesn't love that inspirational changing those snotty judges minds and getting them on her side that the song, you know, went to.
1: Right. I think it's like Ryan said earlier, even if you've never seen this film, you've probably seen some uh, either like replicated version, parody version of like that scene or you've seen like a cut that you've seen a clip. Right. So it kind of like um, it's taken on a little bit of a life of its own over time.
2: Did you you see J-Lo did a whole flash dance video? I can't remember what it was called, but she did a whole flash dance video where she basically cosplayed Alex in the movie.
1: Yeah, I, somewhere, again, somewhere in my pop culture brain, I definitely remember that happening. And I'm sure she's not the only one. I feel like there are probably other examples of that in music video. There, there's got to be.
0: Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I can't put my finger on where it came from.
1: Yeah, I would need to be a way bigger J-Lo fan <laughs> for, that too, for that to happen. Oh. Yeah, you
0: guys are... T- sorry. sorry, it was 2002... She did a music video for the song "I'm Glad," which I don't remember, <laughs> but it was nominated for best visit, uh, the MTV Video Music Award for best choreography. But she, she is uh, in this still on on the internet. Um, she is wearing like the same sweatshirt that Alex is wearing in the cover on the poster of Flashdance. I mean, J Lo can dance, so I understand.
2: Yeah, makes sense. Well, you guys are both talking about like the biggest hits. And it's funny, I was like a B-side person for this tape. Like, and I think literally side B of the tape are the songs I like the best. Um, Like I I was talking about the independent women before, I loved the song Manhunt. Like that song was so evocative to me. And the scene in the movie with Cynthia Cynthia Rhodes, of course, who's Penny in Dirty Dancing, you know, doing her own dancing, doing that backflip off the wall. Like Manhunt is like the ultimate, like I'm taking control of my hands. I'm gonna ask people out myself. Like, I grew up to be a woman who asked men out, like, I'm independent woman, and, like, that song meant so much to me, I think, growing up. It was, like, an anthem. So there were songs that didn't even get released from this tape that I just absolutely love. And, like, Imagination, He's a Dream, or such weird interesting songs with interesting lyrics so the whole tape really resonates with me I'm sorry if I'm cutting ahead if I'm skipping ahead let me know and we'll talk later but in the imagination song like it's got this lyric like the magic of the secret door I can take you down and show you more like those are like lyrics you just listen to them and you're like you're kidding you're like what does that mean you know what I mean you're just like what's going on in this song
1: Honestly, this conversation is really making me wonder if, like, we're going backwards or forwards in terms of how, like, Puritan we are about pop music (laughs) and culture.
2: We might actually be going backwards. Well, when you see all the Twitter uh, stuff about sex scenes, I'm like, that is a little mysterious Ah. to me. Like, have you seen that Twitter discourse about, like, how, why are are there sex scenes in movies? I'm like, I don't know, because sex is a thing that happens. Like, why are there scenes of people being blown up in movies? You know what I mean? Like, which of these things is worse? I don't know. And also, like, in terms of pure, I also want to just mention, too, like, this is a soundtrack podcast, but I wanted to just mention Adrian Lyne. Like, this was Adrian Lyne, the director's first significant movie. And he is, like, the man, the person who does, like, er- he doesn't like to call them erotic thrillers, but he does a lot of erotic thrillers or erotic drama dramas. And, like, I, I realized I had seen almost all of his movies when I was prepping for the show. I was like, whoa, I guess I'm an Adrian Lyne fan. <laughs>
1: Oh wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, I, I feel like people over time have maybe come to view this as like um, I don't know something that's not like boutique or fringe or whatever. But there is like a like a neuroticism to this film, right? That we're talking about that is maybe a little out of the mainstream. So it's interesting that 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 was the case. And this is also this is also produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. Yeah.
2: Is that? Yep. I feel like in my brain, I'm like, is that true? Yeah, I'm like, this is like the Yeah, it, does, it
0: like- doesn't sound like a mix. Yeah,
2: Brookheimer right? <laughs> and Simpson. Yeah, the big action dudes of the 80s. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, nobody blows up in this movie.
2: <laughs> nobody blows up. Yep. Well, her career blows up. Oh, there you go.
0: <laughs> she does throw a brick oh, through a and window.
2: It, <laughs> and it's like, it's written by the guy who wrote Basic Instinct later too. Like this is a whole package of like I... like, like 80s weirdness just coinciding in one place. That is so interesting. Another kind of
1: like iconic uh, female lead in, in in film. Wow, it's super interesting. I feel like the influence of this movie is now, the more that we're talking about it, I'm like underrated. It was the OG. It's like the genesis of everything, <laughs> Gosh.
0: I have a fun little Adrian Line, um fact about this film. So I guess Brian De Palma was at one point in talks to direct Flashdance. Okay. Okay. But then he passed on it to do Scarface. Uh, well, okay. And then Brian, which was also scored by Giorgio Moroder, which is another little connection here. Right. Um, and then uh, Lyon also did Fatal Attraction, which is another movie that was originally going to be directed by Brian Oh that's
2: interesting. Was De Palma the one who did American Gigolo where um Moroder also did the soundtrack? I can't remember actually. Like American Gigolo has a fantastic soundtrack by the way. The Moroder like a uh, soundtrack and then it uses um Blondie and it use the it used was one of the first movies to use like that kind of music so prominently and I've, and that's a great movie too. It's fan, like very stylish.
1: That is a great movie. And I, I, again, there's kind of that, like, that Marauder led bleed between, like, I feel like 70s and early 80s, where every decade is kind of a continuation of the last decade until you're, like, five years in, if that makes sense. At least that's my, like, theory.
2: Yeah, that, yeah, that there's a certain truth to that. Yeah, for sure. Let's see. I'm just, I'm looking it up too, because I'm, like, one of those people who needs to know things immediately. It's terrible.
0: That was Paul Schrader. Schrader.
2: Okay, never mind. Misspoke. Okay, thank you.
0: But yeah, I mean, Marauder was everywhere in the 80s, and I don't think a lot of people realize that. Yeah. So, you know, he obviously did uh, not all the songs, but he scored this movie, and he did a few of the songs on this soundtrack. He did Top Gun's um, Danger Zone and Take My Breath Away. away and then he like scored scarface like he he's like he's got his fingerprints all over like the, the 80s the one
2: that got me was i saw that he did cat people like the david bowie song from cat people the one they use in glorious bastards i was just like oh my god mm-hmm. that song is epic and he he did that and he did like pretty much all of my favorite donna summer songs including he did the yeah. Don- i did not know maybe he didn't do the donna summer song on this soundtrack let me see romeo i love romeo i didn't even realize it was donna summer until years later either but i love that song so much
0: he didn't do this donna summer song i think there was a song they ended up cutting from the film that he did with donna summer though
1: right because somewhere and i don't know if there's been um i don't have this information in front of me everybody furiously google it right now he also made additional tracks for this movie that didn't make it on the soundtrack right right as is usually usually the case like i think he kind of kind of overdid it. He was a very prolific. He's a very prolific dude.
0: Oh, let, let's also connect um, this movie. We talked about Flashdance uh, a few episodes ago in our Full Monty episode, because in the movie the Full Monty, they shoplift a copy of Flashdance so they can watch <laughs> it, because they're learning to erotic dance. And they watch the epic sequence. And um, since they're all steel steelworkers, uh, one of the main characters, Dave, uh, Isn't paying attention to the dancing and just complaining about how bad of a welder she
1: is. (laughs) Right. Because what we haven't discussed yet is that like the I think one of the more like absurdist like plot points in this is that she's like this like steel mill, steel town like girl, like working in
2: Pittsburgh or
0: Yeah. And she's 18.
2: Yeah. Right. Okay. Interestingly, though, there's a scene, a few scenes after that where somebody says, how long does it take to dance like this? And she says about 25 years. And I'm like, did the script supervisor not realize that she like was possibly two different years, two different ages? Because 25 makes more sense. 25, I buy that she's a welder Mm -hmm. with like a really cool loft and a a night job doing this burlesque dance, whatever thing. Yeah. Like, so my headcanon is she is 25. That's my headcanon now.
1: I like that. I think it's the part of it, you're right, where she's like 18. I'm like, are we, what are the child labor laws? Like, how long have you been? (laughs) I
0: mean, it's problematic that her boss is hitting on her, but it's less problematic that she's 25 instead of 18.
2: Yeah. Interestingly, Mm -hmm. in the 80s, it was totally not problematic, though, that her boss was hitting on her. I mean, like, in the 80s, that was, like, how you met people, I guess, right? Like, like, even when I started working at, like, 18 or 19, which was by the mid-90s, like, People were having, you know, relationships with their coworkers and possibly their superiors. So, it, like, the culture has changed so much around that, like, in this short amount of time. Well, it's actually not short. I'm kind of old now, but there you go.
1: And like, I work in advertising, so this sort of thing is still.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I like how he literally says, "You know," she goes, "Oh, I won't. I don't want to date my boss." And he goes, "Okay, you're fired. I'll pick you up at, at seven yeah, or whatever. Yeah, that's a pretty
2: lame joke. That is a yeah, not great. Yeah
0: yeah speaking of lame jokes there was a line cut from um the movie that adrian line like is really sad about and it's when they go to have that fancy dinner like in the script she's supposed to get like a plate of broccoli and she's supposed to be like what am i supposed to do with these little trees
2: (laughs) yeah i feel like we did have broccoli in the 80s so that's weird like (laughs) that's very weird like you've seen broccoli (laughs) like you've been around
0: but, like, Adrian Lyne is, like, really sad that he had to cut that from the movie.
1: Really? That was the darling he was sad to kill? That's a very odd um, odd thing to lament.
2: Yeah, I don't know. That's... I Was the theory being that she, like, grew up, like, really underprivileged to the point where she'd never seen a piece of broccoli? I don't really understand that. Yeah. She lived in Altoona, Pennsylvania, like... Like it is trying to show that she's working class. I mean, maybe it's part of that. Like, I think that is one of the interesting aspects of the film is that she's a working class person. She's a bike commuter. She's a blue collar job, You know, she's doing it for herself. And then she goes to that dance academy and she feels like she doesn't fit in because everybody's had this pedigreed education with their dance lessons. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. I guess maybe that was trying to fit in with that but it's kind of a weird fit, yeah.
1: I also feel like an incredibly, like, frequent 80s trope, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like you have to, like, prove yourself to, like, the prep school or, you know, whatever, like, elite entity or, like, bubble you're trying to
2: burst. Yeah. It's
1: like all over 80s movies. Yes. It's like the, all, there's always that climactic
2: scene of, like, I ah, showed them. <laughs> 100%.
0: Yeah, it's basically Dance Academy Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs>
2: <laughs> or uh, one one crazy summer or yeah that's my that's the one that comes to mind immediately for me <laughs> like every Hughes movie yeah most of them yeah yeah yeah
0: so one thing that uh i i caught I, I didn't know Lee Ving was in this movie and i'm not sure if you guys know who leaving so. is
2: i don't
0: so he's the one that plays johnny c who basically opens the strip oh, club yeah, and he's kind of the villain of the yeah. movie so he, so leaving, I guess his day job would be, I mean, I guess he's been in a couple other movies. He's been in Streets of Fire and Clue, but, um, he's best known for being in a, a band called Fear, They're kind of a hardcore punk band. And, um, I kind of learned about Fear by watching a Dave Grohl Sound City documentary and he uh, interviews Lee and they're just talking about music and then it cuts to Dave Grohl and like his... Van or whatever his truck, and he goes. I can't believe like the sounds. I can't believe the sounds that come out of this guy's mouth because he just kind of has this really like guttural scream. Hmm. So I was like, wait, is that Lee Ving in this movie? <laughs> and I just thought it was it was so um, interesting that he's in. The, I mean, I guess Iggy Pop acts sometimes and stuff like that. Not that I think they're equally talented, but. You know, rock stars show up in movies pretty regularly, but I was just like, "Oh, he's in here."
2: That's cool. That's like totally something I would. That went way over my head. I would not have picked that up. So that's awesome. Yeah.
1: Let's. Uh, that's a good segue into castings. There's some interesting casting tidbits about this film. So there were a few different candidates for the the role that eventually goes to to Jennifer Beals. Um, Demi Moore was one of the other candidates. And apparently, uh, she was chosen because the then Paramount president Michael Eisner, who I feel like we talk about way too much on this podcast, Michael Eisner asked his secretaries at the studio to look at all of the test screenings and pick someone.
2: Oh yeah, and that's yeah, I heard that, and that's why they chose Jennifer Beals because she had that kind of girl next door appeal to people or something. She seemed relatable. Yeah,
1: I can totally see Demi Moore in this part though too, because she has that combination of like sultriness and strength. Yeah. Like, I,
0: it will I, later appear in Adrian Lynn's indecent yeah, proposal.
2: Yeah, which oh, hey, see that which is a total guilty pleasure oh. for me. Like oh, most of Adrian Lyne's films are gu- guilty pleasures for me, to be honest. Although I think he actually made a better Lolita than Kubrick. Like I'll you know die on that hill.
1: <laughs> yeah, I you know what I'm gonna die on that hill with you. I think I would agree. Um, also, I don't even think those movies are guilty pleasures. I think they're like straight up <laughs> really entertaining. They're just super entertaining films. Um, and then the role of Nick Hurley was originally offered to uh, kiss frontman Gene Simmons. What? Really? Which is gross and weird. Uh, and he, I guess he turned it down because he was like, yeah, I feel like that kind of conflicts with my image, which is a hilarious thing to think. I think it's really because he's just super uncomfortable without the kiss
2: makeup, <laughs> right? Huh. That's really interesting. I don't know wh- why somebody would think of him for the role, <laughs> like that's just, it's just kind of mystifying to me, yeah.
0: Yeah, if he was going to be Johnny C, I could see that, but not not Nick.
2: Yeah. You know, super, super strange. I, I don't get that
1: casting at all, especially when it also sounds like, and again, interconnected things here, Pierce Brosnan, De Niro, Richard Gere, uh, Mel Gibson, they were all considered hmm. for the part two, so... Um, yeah, crazy that they that they had all of these people up for it that are probably way more well known, and then it eventually went to somebody who really wasn't
0: and more talented as an actor.
2: I don't know. Right, I think he does all right, and I think he allows Jennifer Beals to shine too. Like I really like, I think it's important that the female character is the stronger and more centered character in the movie. So I think if a guy was acting a little more, it actually might take away from that in a way. I don't know
1: point and I think I think maybe that's um whether it was intended or not it really is a vehicle for her it's her stage it's her film
2: yeah and the other dancers too like um I just loved like having the other women in the movie although one thing that was really glaring to me is that like they let most of the women have highlight dances but not the black dancer she did not get a highlight dance and I'm like what's up with that not cool so I would I would like to see that but that's very,
1: um, I don't know if anybody watched this series on Hulu, the Chippendales series on Hulu. Uh, it's all about like the the founder of Chippendales and how he like goes on to like murder his business partner. It's very dramatic. Oh, wow. It's actually pretty good. Um, Camille Nanjani is in it it's the main role, um, the lead role. Uh, but yeah, there's like this whole plot thread in there about how apparently at the real life Chippendales Club, uh, he didn't want to allow uh, African American dancers at all, and he wouldn't allow the one uh, dancer that he had was that was black to so like be in their calendar. Oh, so I think there was a, a that was a very real problem. I would imagine. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, she's in the movie, but we just don't get a featured dance that we see of that dancer. And maybe she wasn't a dancer. Maybe they cast someone who wasn't even a dancer in that role. I don't know. Not that that affected Jennifer Beals getting to do all the dances. <laughs> did you did you did you both research um about the final scene how there were actually like jennifer beals and then three body doubles in that last scene did you see yep (laughs) do you want to tell about it i can i can or like
1: let's talk about that because honestly i find all of this movie magic stuff like super fascinating
2: (laughs) yeah like there's a gymnast and her regular dancer her regular dance double who was like what marine jahan i think was her name and then there's a male break dancer, too, that, like, refused to shave his mustache, I guess. <laughs> so they had to hide his face.
0: I believe his name was Crazy Legs. That
2: sounds right. Um, crazy Legs?
0: I mean, if you're going to be a break dancer, you should have a name like Crazy Legs.
2: I just like it's just very straightforward.
1: Like, yeah, I got Crazy Legs crazy
2: legs oh yeah richard crazy legs cologne oh. or something like that yeah 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 that's
1: an incredible that's i wish that that's like a straight out of like a name generator
0: <laughs> but but the studio didn't list them in the credits because they wanted people to actually believe that jennifer beals could do all of this yeah. on her own
2: she's like
1: which is crazy it's amazing that you're allowed to do that like can you still do that i, I don't think you can do I that don't... anymore There's like
0: only if bad. you're tom cruise
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> No, I just mean there's gotta be like sag rules around like um you can't not credit body doubles.
2: So this it's it's interesting too because like this is like a real change in like musical or music movie culture too because like I was reading a biography of Gene Kelly and he was just commenting upon when Flashdance came out that he really thought it was a shame that we we're starting to make movies with body doubles and like instead of having dancers doing doing roles that man
0: is so fucking ridiculous. I
2: love Gene <laughs> Kelly. Oh no, he's my new boyfriend. I'm telling you, like I I I read about I read all about him and like watched his movies and I'm like I, he could be a bit arrogant but like man I respect his craft and I and I.
0: No, I, no I love Gene <laughs> Kelly but that man is fucking crazy. <laughs>
2: But but I think it is a good point though, that like we went from like a kind of a culture where people like really perfected their dancing and their singing and their acting to like a culture where like we just piece things together. And it, and it's not necessarily bad, but it's a big change. Like, and it is harder to mount a musical the way they used to mount musicals because of that. Because we're used to having one category of people are actors, one category of people are dancers, one category of singers. You don't have these like multi-talents as much anymore, I think.
0: Before we continue with our episode, Here's a word from our sponsor.
1: Enjoy listening to
2: podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is introducing podcasting made easy from podtastic audio. My
0: production team will handle your entire audio production allowing you to be the star of your show. This is podcasting made easy. How
2: easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podtasticaudio.com easy.
1: Well, you know, some things are underappreciated in their time. Uh, you know, Roger Ebert didn't like this movie. I think it came out to a lot of flashdance, a lot of negative reviews. Yeah. Uh, Roger right. Ebert's line was, it's great sound and flashdance signifying nothing, which sounds like such a Roger Ebert line. Um, so again, I think like it, it got kind of dismissed as being like a lightweight movie, right? Um, but it became this kind of cultural thing. Touchdown.
2: Well, what's one of the reasons it's dismissed as lightweight? It's like female protagonist and a lot of the characters are women. I mean, I think that is a part of it. Honestly, I really do. Like, even if it has this like sexual element that like might titillate men too, but it's, the, it's still a woman protagonist. It does pass the Bechdel test, like t- talking yeah. about dance with her older woman friend and like, you know, just mm-hmm. her life concerns like so. Yeah, I don't know. Ebert, I love Ebert. I admire his work. But, like, sometimes I think he didn't get women movies that were centered around women. Not always. Not always.
0: Or maybe he didn't like the pull oh, jokes. Oh, God.
2: That, like, what is with that guy? Like, <laughs> I mean, I remember <laughs> those jokes being a thing that people did in the 80s. I never understood what the hell that was about, but...
0: <laughs> and then he, like, laughs at his yeah. own jokes.
1: <laughs> I mean, I... It must be some kind of like, uh, this is how we're going to tell people, like people are working
0: class. I don't know. Yeah,
2: something. Yeah. We are not surprised when Richie comes back from LA. We are not.
0: No. Maybe it's to show like he's not going to make it. Like you'll know he's not going to make it because he's just going to tell Polak jokes. (laughs) Like I always get fascinated when you have to do... When you have someone who's kind of like a creative in a movie and you have to like show that they're creative, but you can't give them good enough ideas where like it would pass, like like you should take that as your own and not use it in a mm. movie. Like if you had a, a mm. writer, right? Like you can't have a, them write something that is good enough that it should actually get published.
2: Yeah, yeah, 100%. I see that.
0: You, you know, so you can't have a comedian that it's actually like, So funny, where it's like, oh, actually, a real comedian should be telling these jokes. Hmm. And also, Richie's annoying, so you got to make sure that, like, he tells jokes an annoying person would tell. Someone that works in the kitchen of the erotic dance club.
2: Yeah, like, can we talk about this dance club, too? And, like, 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 this is, like... I mean I know there are burlesque clubs but I find it hard to believe that this particular club would exist you know what I mean like they're doing art, artistic yes. dances and like they're, they're sexy certainly and fun to watch but they're not like sexy enough to be like really a strip club but it's not really like a high class enough place to seem like it's an art club it, it's just totally wild vibe they got going on there and there's that one like totally experimental scene um, I believe with yeah, the TV I think right? I that's the song Imagination is in there and it's just like there's strobe lights happening in a crazy like costume that looks like a Bjork video and like I mean <laughs> that's the moment too where this movie most embodies like MTV to me like where it just looks like it's straight off of what you would have seen in the early 80s on MTV TV, that scene yeah and i know they clipped a couple of the things for mtv i don't know if imagination in that tv scene was one of them but like yeah such a avant-garde thing going on in this club what's up with that
1: <laughs> right What it, it is kind of avant-garde like weird production value
0: yeah like even the dance at the beginning where she pulls the thing and water comes on and you know dumps water on her like i feel like even that would be like a little too like cool for a burlesque club
2: yeah and these guys are just like hanging out drinking beer like pur- like purportedly maybe after their job at the welding factory where who knows what they're welding and yeah who knows what they're welding is such a good
1: point. we never find out who knows what right they're welding? uh yeah not- he just not-
0: owns this company where like a bunch of people just like bang <laughs> shit all day and <laughs> no, that's totally.
1: not to sound preoccupied but- chippendales and i don't know where in like the 80s timeline like this falls versus like chippendales but maybe there was some kind of like pressure to make it like a stage show or something as opposed to just like a down and dirty strip club in pennsylvania Mm -hmm. i don't know there's
2: definitely it makes a better movie though
1: like and it's with a weirder set piece it's
2: really interesting too how the um the strip or the the malbys club that she's dancing in is really like contrasted against that strip club so you see in the Malby's club each woman comes on separately they have their costume they have their bit they have a totally different set design then you go to the strip club and it's really just like a buffet table of completely naked women just kind of lackadaisically like uh, swaying this way and that maybe moving their legs back and forth a little bit right this is your one nudity scene in the movie too and like i don't know that made a big impression on me when i was a kid i was like that kind of sexy dancing good that kind of sexy dancing bad <laughs> like it was, right. it was like there was... right it it is no definitely like it's that thing that happens
1: inside you when you're in um a strip club that you feel bad about being in versus when you're in one that you're like okay i feel like people are being like fairly compensated and protected <laughs>
2: Yeah, it almost felt like he was trying to traffic her, like that um, actor you were talking about before yeah. who had the strip club, it felt like he was trying to traffic Alex into the strip club at one point, like he's trying to drag her in there or something. I'm like, what? like, which I mean, probably does yeah. happen. Of course, people get trafficked into sex work sometimes, but probably not like that. Probably not like from across the street at the other club and she has her own job as a welder, but whatever, yeah.
0: No, but I, there is definitely a contrast where like, they definitely show the strip club as like, you're throwing your life away. but. Yeah at this artsy burlesque club like no no no, you're you're doing you're you're just working your way up to what you want to do And you know what i just you still have dreams
2: you know what i also just noticed like the song playing in the strip club seduce me tonight is one of the only songs on the soundtrack voiced by a man with a man's voice on it um the, the, the Mm -hmm. the songs the women are dancing to are almost all i think they all are by with women vocalists and then you have another, you have Maniac, well, that's not at the club, but you have Maniac, which is a man. And then you have Lady, 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 which is that love song that's so, that I didn't like it when I was a kid. I think it's really beautiful now. They're dancing to a men's voice in a CD club and they're not differentiated. They're just like a bunch of naked women on a table. I don't know.
1: Yeah, so that's a great point. That feels like it, it was probably intentional.
0: Hmm. Hmm. So I just wanted to add, so the non Marauder songs on the soundtrack were basically sourced from by Phil Ramone, no relation to the <laughs> punk band. Uh, but Phil Ramone, uh, pretty he's a pretty um, pretty accomplished person on his own right. Even though he's not related to the Ramones, um, he was a producer engineer. He's won many Grammys, um, mostly for working with Billy Joel. Hmm. But he um, also got a Grammy for, you know, helping put together the Flashdance soundtrack. So whether it was intentional or not, like, you have some pretty, I know we talked about, like, on the film side with, you know, Adrian Lin and Jerry Bruckheimer. But on the music side with, uh, alongside Marauder, you have Phil Ramone putting together this mix of music, which obviously, you know, sold six million copies and was one of the highest selling soundtracks of all time.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's a great mix. I think it's a great, like, early 80s kind of mix of sounds on there, too. Like, some, there's some kind of weirder stuff. There's some ballads. There's some dance songs. It's like, I mean, obviously, I think it's a great mix because I listened to it nonstop in the 80s. So, And I'll still listen to it sometimes now. Do you Do you both of you, do you either, like, I'm curious, because I told my experience. Did either of you have experience with this soundtrack or own it or, like, any songs that resonated with you at the time?
1: I think at the time that it came out, I was a little too young, but because it had such a long life um, that extended beyond the year that this movie was released and probably at peak popularity through MTV and, and in theaters, um, it felt like it was always there. So I think I'm at that age where it feels like it is just like assimilated into like a part of my identity. And I've never like known a time where I didn't know a lot of these songs the deeper cuts i was less familiar with until later on um which is typical you know you're sometimes when you're too young for something you go on to like rediscover it in a deeper way later yeah i don't know ryan is that kind of your experience where you're just like well my life has always been flashdance <laughs> it's always been there
0: yeah i think that maniac like the two big songs like i feel like i've known them forever even if i didn't know they were from this movie it's kind of like Purple Rain, like I was right. two when Purple Rain came out, but I knew all the songs. Like when I heard the soundtrack, like when I act- like sat down and listened to them, I was like, I know all, all nine of these songs. <laughs> so Flashdance kind of had a similar thing. Maybe not all the songs, but there was definitely, oh, this is from Flashdance. Oh, this is also from Flashdance. Um, it definitely had that effect. And I'm sure part of it is because, like Nicole, I have older siblings who... We're of the age where, like, Flashdance was, like, appropriate for them, but I was literally an, an infant <laughs> when it came out. But, you know, probably just from, like, car rides and from watching MTV with them, like, I'm sure that I became familiar with some of these songs just kind of through osmosis.
1: Yeah, yeah
2: yeah and for me for me it's been like i had my favorites when i was a kid which were like manhunt and romeo and probably what a feeling and then like there were songs i didn't like but like i said because it was a tape i would listen to them anyway and i came back to it for this and i was like i really love i'll be here where the heart is that kim Carnes vocal so beautiful Mm. did not relate to it when i was a kid now i'm like oh yeah i feel this song and that lady 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 came back for me um it was in Call Me By Your Name, which is very appropriate because that film's from set in 1983. So there's a scene where there's a slow dance to Lady, Lady, Lady. And I was like, oh, that feels fresh again. That feels new. It's actually on the soundtrack to Call Me By Your Name too. So, which is an which is uh, also a very interesting soundtrack.
1: Yeah. I didn't realize that. That is actually really cool because I'm sure that they thought about that. I'm sure this movie soundtrack was in that supervisor's mind when they made that choice. Yeah. Had to be.
2: Yeah, because, like, the the album, like, was pretty big in Europe, too, I think. Like, like it was probably pretty prominent over there. I mean, I might be wrong about that, so I'm sorry. I should probably <laughs> speak out of turn. Well, I mean, it
1: kind of makes sense. I, and, again, like, I don't have any evidence of this either, but between, like, the Marauder connection and the fact that this seemed to have been, like, a global phenomenon is probably pretty easy to translate into a multitude of languages. Like, it, it's a story that's pretty visual Yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that it was popular like the world over it has to be
0: yeah it's nine times platinum in Canada it debuted on the UK charts um, at number nine and spent 30 weeks on that chart it was the best selling album of 1983 in Japan
1: wow I like it dang big in Japan
0: yep Australia Austria Germany Norway Sweden Switzerland went four t- uh it was also four times platinum there
2: cool
0: and was number one in all those countries so yeah i would definitely call it a global hit and in 2011 time magazine listed as one of the top 25 movie soundtracks and had sold 20 million copies as, as of 2011 wow
2: yeah if my ta- top 20 if my tape ever breaks i'll b- buy a new one maybe i'll add to it i'll add to the millions <laughs>
0: Yeah, and it's probably one of the soundtracks from the 80s that you can still easily buy.
2: That's true. Is it really, like, I haven't actually tried. Is it pretty hard to buy a lot of the 80s soundtracks? I feel like cassette tapes in general, depending on what they are, can
1: be scarce and they actually will, like, catch a pretty high price depending on what they are. This this one I think you can probably get still relatively cheap because they made so many of them.
2: Oh, I wouldn't need it to be a tape. I still have a tape player. But yeah. <laughs> You're like, doesn't have to be yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, that. Yeah. I think the like really big soundtracks like Top Gun and and uh, Flashdance, mm-hmm. Purple Rain, like mm-hmm. those are like still very easy to find, you know, because they sold so many millions of copies. But like a lot of '90s soundtracks that weren't like major hits, like The Crow or like singles, like a lot of those are hard to find now. And now like soundtrack vinyl has become like a mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. like big collector's yeah. thing because of that.
2: Yeah. yeah. Really wish i still had my some kind of wonderful vinyl oh my god i should never have let that go yeah um i wanted to, like there's some other like influences from flash dance like that i don't know if like this is more this is less soundtrack related so if you can cut it if you want but like some other influence from, some other influences from flash dance like was the fashion like that do you remember that whole leg warmer thing and the torn sweatshirt thing yeah. like That is from this movie. I remember owning like several pairs of leg warmers and begging my mom, can I have another pair of leg warmers? And she says, you don't even dance. Why do you need these leg warmers? She did. She did not understand. Um, And it's, it's got that fashion influence. And then it's also got, um, I think it helped a little bit to break out break dancing too. Just a little bit of break dancing you see in the movie, that Mm -hmm. one scene because breaking the movie came out in 84. And I think that probably helped it along a little bit. I don't know. Like, Those are some cultural influences I noticed from this movie as well.
1: I'm going to tell a really, a really ridiculous story. So in high school, and I graduated high school in 99, for reference. In high school, uh, we had a group project in senior year where each of us had to make a video about a particular decade. And the video could be scripted however we wanted it to be. Uh, And I remember very vividly that uh, we grabbed like somebody's camcorder because that's how long ago this was. And the opening of our video was all like footloose and flash dance. (laughs) It was literally like the opening sequence of like footloose with the feet and then like a transition into like leg warmers. It's exactly what you're saying uh, and like flash dance. I think it might've been like what a feeling or something. Uh, But yeah, like that's, it basically was the eighties. I feel like it defined like a certain era of fashion, too. so beyond just, like, the music, it it kind of, like, was a whole cultural shift.
0: And definitely the kind of long extended dance performances, you know, the kind of music video sort of elements of the movie, definitely you see again in in Purple Rain. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, because MTV made this film, arguably, I think, succeed in the way that it did because that's something that people could, like, constantly view like pieces of this and that drove interest in the movie is the idea that they had this soundtrack and this very like youth oriented music tie-in and you know as you already said Jen I feel like that you know created this effect where a lot of other movies took cues from that and created like similar there was a lot of similar like filmmaking that fell out of that because of MTV and because of the way you could market.
2: Yeah. And it, I probably helped create, like, it helped probably create the culture of like having a really good soundtrack for your movie, re- recruiting people for your soundtrack that would like um, be able to put on, you'd be able to put them on MTV. You'd be able to use that free marketing essentially. I can actually kind of miss that element. Actually. I actually kind of miss a movie having its big song that you like that you watch on MTV. Like I remember like, The excitement of that, like when Robin Hood Prince of Thieves was about to come out, like I I was a big dork for that movie. And everything I do, I do it for you video, I would watch it and be like, yes, like, like this looks so good. And then afterwards I watch it like, yes, remembering the movie, these these videos with these clips from the movies, I just loved them. And it's kind of a lost culture in a way, because nobody's like really going to YouTube and watching some music video that shows scenes from a movie. I don't think anymore. or TikTok or like whatever, like, well, TikTok, you'd have to have a longer video and they don't usually. So, yeah.
0: So I have a a kind of funny story um so i went to so my sister used to have like friends and family over for like thanksgiving and and stuff and um she's what 12 years older than me um so it's like thanksgiving or something and i'm a film major in college and i'm all excited to talk to people about how much i know about movies and i'm talking to this guy and um and he's like oh you know i i've directed a couple things and you know it seems like you're you know you're very knowledgeable and you know you should keep on working towards whatever you want to do screenwriting directing whatever and uh, i was like sorry i didn't get your name and he goes oh my name is brian de palma no. <laughs> but but not that brian de palma wait
1: what you're talking so about like, he was not the brian de palma he was just he's a not guy.
0: the brian de palma But I was like, you know how hard it has to be to be named Brian De Palma, where you're a filmmaker, but you're not the Brian De Palma? Like, do you know how many like disappointed (laughs) people like you've probably met in your life? No,
1: you have to change your name to like Ryan Palmer. You don't stay another Brian De Palma. It doesn't work like that.
0: Like, you know, when you use imdb.com and you type in Brian De Palma, it's like Brian De Palma 1. And it has like, you know, all the big movies that he's done. And then there's Brian De Palma 2. He's Brian De Palma 2.
2: I guess it's better than being Brian De Palma. You're not there. So there you go. That's the bright side.
0: <laughs> yeah. But it's like being named Michael Jordan, but being bad at basketball.
1: <laughs> I have an accountant at uh, my work whose name is Bruce Lee.
2: Nice. But he's an
1: accountant. And that always makes me laugh.
2: I'd feel pretty awesome if I, my name was Bruce Lee and I was an accountant. I don't know. I like that. I like that. Just be like, I am the Bruce Lee of accounting. So there you go. Like I'm the best at
1: this. I hope he really leans into. I don't know him. I just get finance emails from him sometimes. You
0: should try to pick a fight with him.
1: <laughs> See how that goes.
0: And then, and then you'll know for sure. <laughs> yeah, my best friend um, went to college in Pittsburgh, and um, so he had, he had gone to like the same private school like his entire K through twelve. So he, ha- he has a Korean first name, but for 12 years, he didn't have to worry about it. Like You correct people once, and then people know how to say your name, and you don't worry about it. But then when he got to college, nobody knew how to say his name, and his last name is Lee, so he started going by Bruce because it was funny. So I also know Bruce Lee, but it was more because uh, he got annoyed that he was getting emails for international students
2: he's <laughs> what so he chose that life wait so like you yeah. brought up pittsburgh like because you're a friend like i don't know if any of you been to pittsburgh like that's in this movie and like uh what i thought it was pretty awesome like i always like it when you see a movie that's set in like a secondary city you know like i always love that and i the pittsburgh vibe have either of you been there like do you, do you did you did you like the setting there in the movie
0: i mean i i wouldn't go to like the areas that she lives in like i wouldn't I I wasn't, um, you know, as a tourist, I wasn't like, take me to like the places where I might get Well, oh,
2: I just meant like, do you like the way they use the setting in the movie or they use the secondary city? Cause I'm always like, I just love it when like you've got a rom-com set in Baltimore or you've got like, you know, just like, it's not mm. like LA, New York, Chicago all the time. I just like having that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I like the working class backdrop and I thought, I mean, I guess that's why she's a welder. Cause it's they're known for their steelworking.
2: Yeah, and I love that actually that first scene when like um, the What A Feeling song, there's kind of this like metallic kind of edge that like Moroder's like added to it. Like, you, you know what I'm talking about in the instrumental portion? Like, tchunk, tchunk, I, can't, I can't replicate it with my voice. Um, just at the beginning of the song, there's just like a little bit of a metallic sound. Like it's like a Metropolis feel to it. And I think Moroder actually made a new soundtrack for the movie Metropolis too. So like he's got sometimes that industrial feel like just in a few of these mm-hmm. songs which I r- thought really was awesome.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't put it past him. He he is a legend for a reason. And
2: like it makes it such a different movie to be set in Pittsburgh than it would be if it was set in LA, right? Like like or in Vegas like showgirls or something, right? Like like dancing in a place you don't expect it.
0: Ironically, I believe the conservatory is in LA. Oh, oh yeah. Like where yeah, they where shot they actually
2: it. shot it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Like I'm sure they didn't want to like spend that long in Pittsburgh, sadly, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Even when they do shoot like something in place like Baltimore, I think he's just not that into you did like a little bit in Baltimore and then everything else in LA, like that kind of thing. Yeah.
0: Or it's like, Oh, we'll just call Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, nowadays. Pittsburgh.
2: Nowadays, yeah.
0: <laughs> or Georgia. So now that you've had, I mean, obviously we've had a lot of time with the soundtrack. I know that you've had feelings about songs when you're younger and now as an adult, what would you consider to be your top three songs?
2: So, do you want me to go first? Like, (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, you're the guest. So, my top three songs are probably different than what are, like, the top three, like, best songs on the soundtrack, probably. Um, I think my top three now would be... Oh, my God. I can't... No, somebody else has to go first. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) Nicole, could you go first and allow me some time? Like, ordering at a restaurant or, like... (laughs)
1: Like we're is like we're ordering at a restaurant. Like no no no, you, you go. I'll be ready in a second. Uh, gosh, I don't know. It's hard, you know. Like I have a. This is where this is where I tell you guys that I have a really I have a really weird relationship to eighties music, okay. right? Like I'm not really a nostalgia person in the sense that like it brings me back to like a good place all of the time. And so sometimes I listen to things like this and they feel like an artifact of portions of my life that I'm like, yeah, we don't. I don't necessarily want to go back there. Um, so I try to kind of like revisit them with like a fresh mind, and not necessarily like I'm still two or three or five. I, looking at this soundtrack again and trying to kind of be a little bit more of like I'm I'm looking at this objectively as an adult. I mean, I still. I do like i'll be where the heart is i, I like kim karn's vocal on that and you brought that up earlier um i love flash dance, what a feeling i just think it's like a classic like power moment in pop um and it did like it just feels so cliche and so i'm so sorry to do this not with deep cuts but like i like seduce me tonight a little bit for that like marauder edge and, and
2: then i like maniac i like it yeah. i mean. It's fun. Um, that might be four, Man- but I, it's they're fun. Maniac will definitely get you pumped to exercise, right? Like I watch even that scene in the movie, and I'm yeah. like, "What am I doing with my life? Why am I not in a gym? Why am I not dancing?"
1: <laughs> like, right? I just got a Peloton not that long ago, and I'm like, a Peloton to that Peloton my ass off to Maniac. Like I get it. Um, and so there's something that like you know is very transcendent. If you can still have, there's still like a, a, an audience for something like that, it means that it taps into something good. Yeah
2: okay i've had enough time i've had enough time to decide what i'm ordering <laughs> um so i'm gonna keep romeo from when i was a kid i just love that song like my romeo oh oh. it's so catchy just like um just the uchaka, uchaka, uchaka. it's just so i don't know what donna summer is doing but i like it i it just it's, yeah. it goes fast it's like jazzy I love that song I, it reminds it's me great. of having crushes on people in the second grade which is a little weird but like <laughs> that was the song i always associated with my little second grade crushes um and then Imagination, I just think the lyrics are interesting. It's an interesting song. Um, it's, I love the line, you've got to walk right through that fire. It will not burn you. Just there's, I, I love the lyrics and I love the the, it's kind of a weird song, right? And then finally... I hated this song when I was a kid, so this is weird, but Lady, 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 I just, it resurged for me with Call Me By Your Name. I heard it then and I was like, this is a beautiful love song and I dig it and I can sing it and sing along to it and feel good. So yeah, those are gonna be my three.
1: Moment of truth, Ryan, what are you ordering?
0: I got a sign. <laughs> um, I'm gonna go with, with what a feeling, cause how can you not? I think I'm also gonna go with Lady 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 and with um Ooh, okay. with Romeo as well. I just can't deal with Maniac as a standalone song anymore. I think I think it's just been kind of like overused mm-hmm. in things yeah. to the point where like it's self parody. Mm-hmm. Like I I think it's a joke at this point.
1: I like a joke song, so that's probably why I'm into it. Honestly, like I like something that I can belt at karaoke and not be
0: embarrassed.
1: Nice.
0: Um, that's that's fair. I just feel like it's like I don't know. Like if uh, like like if Family Ties or not fam- if Family Matters was gonna have like a dance off, like Steve Urkel would pick Maniac as his song.
1: I also think that like I I like that I know what to do with my body during a song, and I know what to. do. Do right. with maniac. There's you just get hyped as long as like, as, as long as you have high energy, do it
0: doesn't matter what you're do doing with for them. that song. Yeah. Basically. Like you just
2: do the thing with your feet. Yeah, do the thing with your feet. Or you can turn around repeatedly and we see like the thigh view, which I, I have to say <laughs> I actually I did like the thigh view. It was it was the Leotard thing was cool. I liked it. Oh yeah, that is cool. I don't think I could turn around like that though, so it wouldn't work for me. Oh well. <laughs> yeah
0: break ahead <laughs> so so i'm just i'm just Terrible. thinking i know that you know you were talking about how this movie kind of i don't want to say triggered but like you know you 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 saw this movie and you know you're talking about it, how it kind of affected your sexuality or you know the chicken or the egg thing with your sexuality is that just like an adrian lynn thing because like i still remember like being like 10 and watching like not even watching the movie, but like watching the trailer for Indecent Proposal and like Demi Moore, like on the bed, like covered in money and being like, yeah. I I probably like, you am know. not supposed to be seeing that, but I really find that provocative.
1: It makes me feel some kind of way. Like also the screenplay is co-written by, did we already say this, by Joe Escherhaus, yeah. who is the guy that, that wrote Showgirls. And I feel like there's something like very, like deeply weird Like a deeply weird kind of sexy that's in a lot of these films that we've discussed, like all like in the universe of Flashdance, right?
0: Yeah, I haven't seen Showgirls, but I feel like in the backstage, yeah, I haven't seen it Uh, in the backstage scenes where the dancers are talking. I was like, this feels like showgirls no, to me. Even though flash I have
2: is better than showgirls. I mean,
1: showgirls. Flashdance is objectively better than showgirls, but showgirls is so yeah. weird. And so wide. there's something about it that make, it makes a great, you know, like just, I
2: mean, what's your favorite what's your favorite scary movie showgirls you know like there, there's a reason that's a line in screen too it's a good movie though it's interesting it's well it's not a good movie but it's a good movie to watch put it that way it's a good bad movie but um to your to your question though like i think it's not really adrian Lyne. although i do think his films like speak to me on a certain level for me i think it was more just like this series of powerful women and it's weird maybe to call alex powerful but i do feel she was portrayed as powerful living on her own and then like bike commuting and doing a blue collar job. And then she's dancing and expressing her sexuality. She's in that scene at the dinner where she's not afraid to say like, I fucked his brains out or like just be really open Mm. and sexual and it's not shamed. She is not shamed for that in the movie, in the plot. right? And then you had a through line from that to like Madonna. And there's more exhibitionism in Madonna. Like if you watch her um, video for Open Your Heart, she's like literally working in a peep show. Like I grew up with all these images of like, on the one hand, these very powerful women, on the other hand, behaving very sexually and like that being portrayed as good. And I think that really did like ingrain itself in me. And like, just the example of women asking men out and like taking power of their sexuality of how that's gonna go. Like that really stuck with me. Like, um, I mean, it's probably also cause I grew up as a nerd, so I wasn't really being asked out that much. So I had to ask guys out, but I feel like that. And then Dirty Dancing too, like Baby is the one who portrays, you know, Johnny in that movie. She's the one who actually makes a move on Johnny. and. You didn't see that as much in some later movies, I think. I think the 80s was kind of like this interesting time of certainly feminism wasn't super advanced yet, but like women were kind of breaking out. Like women were kind of taking over these male roles in the workplace and they were taking over like these supposedly male roles in sexual relationships. And I grew up in that kind of furnace, right? <laughs> like that like little pocket.
0: Yeah. And even though she works for Nick, she you never feel like she really needs yeah. him.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. You know, and it's not about like, oh, then she gets promoted because she doesn't really care about the job.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she specifically doesn't want his help to get into the dance conservatory. She gets pissed at him when he does kind of give her a hand, which like in retrospect, I'm like, take the help, take the help. But like at the time, I couldn't understand why you want to make it on your own. You want to do this like without, you know, using that system, you know, nepotism or whatever.
0: Right. He also has his character is also kind of weird cuz he frequents this dance club but then he is also like super classy like I know people on the arts board Is
2: it Yeah, isn't it in the the plot somewhere that like he used to he grew up in that neighborhood or something? I think that's what it was. Yeah.
0: Right, yeah. like he grew up with like Johnny C. I used to like steal stuff from him. <laughs>
2: i mean there are definitely like some leaps yeah, in
1: yeah. this right movie. like you N- gotta suspend- like they never
0: explain like how he no, ended up with you, his own company you
1: got to suspend your disbelief a little bit and i think with this one you have to really lean into like the energy and the power and the assertiveness of this very strong female character and this very strong female-led story which is i think the ultimate attraction of it right is more that energy and less about like that's a really weird <laughs>
2: Yeah, I never really stopped to think about what they were welding either. Yeah, so or yeah, because you're not how to. Nick got a red bow on her pit bull at the end of the movie, or or any of. That.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, like in an action movie that's just like fun and frenzied, and you're into it and you're entertained. Like people don't ask that you don't get mad about yeah, stuff like yeah. this. I feel like people pick apart yeah. movies like this for having holes. But why can't you just enjoy it for what yeah. it is i think
2: when we pod when we podcast the nature of things is to pick apart things too though i think that's stuff def- <laughs> well yeah i mean <laughs> i've i can critique it all
1: day but at the end whether it's on track or it's a movie or it's both like it, it's really just how it hits you do you enjoy it or do you not yeah. like do you have a visceral enjoyment Plus, I mean, we should this, just like, be amazed piece that of
0: this movie that they made or, for seven million dollars you know, ended up it? grossing 200
2: Wow, was it that high? Uh, and how high? Especially wow. how
0: sparse. That million actually this movie seems kind of high though
2: for
1: 83. Mm.
0: Spent it all on the break dancing. Mhm. Hmm.
2: <laughs>
1: it was all of those uh, uncredited body doubles.
2: Oh yeah, well there's that too. Or for apparently sure. Adrian I just thought that was smoke an 80s thing. in his full main for some reason too. I don't know if that was the smoke machine budget or
0: yeah. <laughs> if it's dark, there's smoke coming out yeah. somewhere. Well, uh, thank you, Jennifer, for coming on our podcast.
2: Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. I'm glad to be able to like talk to you both. Like, this is the first time we've actually talked talked and not on Twitter. So yeah, really that's cool.
0: that's right. So I'm glad that uh, we got to talk. And um, how often do episodes of every rom com come out for our, our listeners who want to check it out?
2: Oh. Well, that's an interesting question, which I can't quite answer, but we try to get them out every two weeks. Um, a lot of research goes into each episode. So there was a little gap while I was preparing our musicals series. But yeah, we're ha- we're in our musicals series right now. We're trying to get them out every two weeks. We're going to be covering a wide range of musicals from all the way from Top Hat to up to In the Heights. So we're looking forward to that.
0: Mirandaverse.
2: Episode. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And uh, oh, should I tell where you can find it or anything like that? Is that something oh, you can say Oh, absolutely.
0: Either?
2: Okay, yeah. And if you want to see the podcast, we're, you can find us like wherever you get your podcasts. We're also at everyromcom.com. We're on Facebook at Every Rom-Com podcast and blog. We're on Twitter at, at everyromcompod. And we're on Instagram at, at everyromcom. So, pretty, um, similar across the platforms, except on Twitter, there is actually somebody who's just at every rom-com, but they are not us. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. So don't go to Soundtrack Cast on Twitter either, because that's somebody else.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're going to give out blue sky. And we're going to nail
1: that handle in the beta. <laughs>
0: so you can find us on Twitter at Soundtrack underscore your, and on Instagram at SoundtrackCast. And, um, and if you would like to support our podcast, you can also go to patreon.com soundtrackyourlife soundtrack your life. But uh, thanks again, Jen. It was really fun talking about flash dance with you.
2: Thank you. What a feeling.
0: <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, SoundtrackingLife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a
2: rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.